We do pray this morning, Lord, that you would lift the veil over our eyes, that we would um, see you, that we would behold your glory, that we would learn uh, from your word. We thank you, Lord, for the ministry of the Spirit among us. We um, say, come, Holy Spirit. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, well, kids are in um, the service today, as you all know, uh, because you kids are here. Uh, We do have nursery. I think uh, you all know that as well. um, uh, And uh, next week, just so you know, we'll be starting a more expanded um, children's ministry during our single services, um, which we'll have through August. Um, But uh, we have been doing a drawing prompt for any kids that want to draw and engage their imaginations um, during this part um, of the, the service. Um, and my drawing prompt today, and I actually this morning I was like, did I already give this as a drawing prompt? But we've been doing them long enough that maybe we're going to start running into repeats, right? There's just only so much you can draw. Um, but the drawing prompt for today actually is this altar, which I'm going to be standing in front of most of the time. So I'll try to move back and forth uh, for kids to give you um, different angles, but you've got a moment here to look at it. So you can draw this altar. It's got the holy, holy, holy on it. It's got the Alpha and Omega. It's got the Lamb. You can draw this whole area if you um, want to. And I'm asking you to draw that altar because I want to start with the story um, about this altar. Um, as many of you know, um, this uh, a building was originally built by Gethsemane Lutheran um, Church. Um, they were here for a long time, um, and then they uh, moved out in the 70s um, and actually built a new church just a few blocks from here, up on Highway um, 7. Um, there are a couple of other different communities that were in this building before we moved in. When um, Church of the Cross moved into this building, um, leaders from Gethsemane reached out to us and said, we have stuff from that building that we moved out with us, but we're actually not using it. It's in storage. And so if you would like it, let us know. And we said, yes, we would like it. Um, we didn't think much about it. Eventually, actually, we were able to put the stained glass that had been removed. But one of the things they gave to us was this altar. Um, but it was um, wrapped up, um, so we actually couldn't see it. Um, they wheeled it in, um, and um, the person delivering it to us said, I know it's going to need a lot of work. Hopefully you've got some handy people and some people that know woodworking, so it'll need some work before you can use it. And we said, okay. So we wheeled it actually into this room over here that is now Andine's office. At that point, it was just storage area, and it was in there for a year. Um, and then one day someone said, uh, probably John Hardiker, someone said, maybe we should look at it and figure out what is the work we have to do on that altar. And so we pulled it out, we unwrapped it, and it looked like this. This is what it was. I think there was like one piece of wood that had to be like nailed in the back. And so we were like, oh my goodness, like that's our altar. Now, just so you know, at that time, our altar before that was a um, butcher block uh, kitchen table uh, put on bricks so that it'd be high enough to do communion because it was low, covered with a white cloth. So it was fine, but not real impressive. So as you can imagine, the first Sunday, people are coming in and they're seeing this up here and they're like, oh my goodness, that's beautiful, you know? And we're saying, yeah, it was part of the original church and it's been returned, isn't that great? And of course, everyone kept asking, so did they just give it to you this week? Um, and I had to keep saying, no, it's actually been wrapped up in this room for a year. Um, and it was painful. People were like, what were you thinking? Why did you keep it wrapped up in a year? So I share that because we had been given this gift that we didn't appreciate, right? We hadn't unwrapped the gift to see what a great gift it was. And today I want to reflect on the gift of the Spirit of God, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I want to suggest that I think many of us actually have been received this gift and we don't appreciate what an incredible gift we have received. 
And to be very clear, when I talk about the gift of the Holy Spirit, I want to be clear, the Holy Spirit is a person, the Holy Spirit is Lord, as Paul makes clear in this, re- in this reading. So don't, don't think we've been given a force, we've been given a power, an impersonal thing. We've been given the very person of God, the gift of the Holy Spirit at work in our midst, and work in us as individuals, and work as us as a church. And that is a gift that I believe in this passage today, from 2 Corinthians, Paul is wanting to say, look at what an incredible gift you have. Celebrate, embrace this gift. Look at all you've been given in the Spirit. And I think, again, it's good for us as well to say, do we fully appreciate this gift? Are we, have we perhaps forgotten what a gift we have? And is there a sense that we can sort of bring the gift out and say, Lord, thank you for this gift you've given us? Now, um, uh, uh, a little background here. If you've been with us in um, Second Corinthians, um, you know that a lot of the book, at least so far, <clears throat> has dealt with Paul actually sort of defending his ministry. As we talked about at the beginning of this, you can sometimes Second Corinthians is a bit challenging because you think, why is Paul talking so much about himself? And but we'll, as we'll see in this passage, as we've seen in past passages, he's talking about himself because God called him um, as an apostle um, to teach and to lead the Corinthian church. And they are rejecting his leadership, which some are being told to do, and they've had some conflict around that. They're actually in danger of, directing the, of rejecting the very message that he's been called by God to give to them. So we'll see that continuing in this passage. But again, he's talking about his ministry, at least at the beginning, because he's wanting them to understand, this is the message I've taught to you. This is my ministry. It's a ministry, as he says, of the new covenant. I'm speaking to you about the work of the Spirit. Do not reject me as a leader because you do not want to reject what I have taught you, which is that you have received the very Spirit of God. You have this incredible gift that you need to celebrate and live into. All right, so we see um, at the beginning, um, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Again, he ended the last passage, which Andine preached on last week, say, you know, basically speaking to his integrity, saying, I've been called by God. I operate in the sight of God. Right, if you remember right, he said, I'm not a peddler of God's word. I'm not trying to you know, fool you. I'm not trying to sell God's word. I'm presented it to you as one called by God. And so here, right, continuing that vein of argument, he's saying, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Right, apparently he's been accused and other apostles have been accused right, of commending themselves, right, of pushing themselves too much. And he's saying, look, that's not actually ultimately what my concern is about commending myself. I'm commending the gospel, um, and I'm helping you understand what my calling is as, as an apostle. But then he says, right, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? So apparently, likely what was happening, um, we've talked about there were these sort of false apostles, these super apostles, he calls them at one point, who were probably influencing the church. And probably these guys, you know, all had these letters of recommendation, right? You know, sort of letters that showed who had approved them, how impressive they were. And perhaps they had even said, where are Paul's letters of recommendation? You know, supposedly he has some, you know, connections with the church in Jerusalem, but, you know, does he really? And so they're probably trying to undermine Paul and sort of pointing to their letters of recommendation and asking where Paul's were. So he says, do we need them? But then he says, you yourselves are a letter of recommendation, right? So I don't actually need a letter to show you that I'm legit as an apostle. Actually, what I can point to that points to my calling as an apostle is you, you're my letter of recommendation. 
This past year, about a year ago, um, I watched um, the documentary The Last Dance, which maybe some of you saw. I think a lot of people were watching it during uh, the pandemic, um, which um, told the, the story of um, the Chicago Bulls and their championship, mini championships, their six championships under uh, when Michael Jordan uh, played with them. Fascinating uh, um, documentary. Um, and uh, uh, one person that I especially appreciated that they interviewed quite a lot in that documentary was Michael Jordan's trainer, right? I mean, you know, you think this guy's really important. I'd never heard of him. But you hear a little bit about what it's like to be the trainer for Michael Jordan. And what I found was especially fascinating was when he had to, at one point, train Michael Jordan um, to no longer be a basketball player, but to be a baseball player. And so he had to, like, actually figure out, I need a whole new training regimen as Jordan decided to play baseball for a couple years, right? And then, of course, he had to train Jordan to go back into basketball after being a baseball player for a couple years as he returned to the Bulls. So I was like, man, this guy is so impressive. Now, imagine that you're wanting to hire a personal trainer and this guy applies, okay? Not likely. So although, who knows? Maybe he just would do it for fun, right? He's in retirement. I mean, he applies to be a personal trainer and you say, hey, could I have a letter of recommendation? What would he do? He'd point to Michael Jordan. He'd be like, he's my letter of recommendation, I mean, why would you need a letter from me? Look at this person who I trained. I think that's the sense of what Paul's doing here. But notice, he's not saying, you're my letter of recommendation because you guys are so impressive because the church has grown, right? We got great numbers, right? We got high conversion rates, although, you know, certainly the Lord was at work in that church. He's saying, you're our letter of recommendation written on our hearts. That actually what marks me as an apostle is not just that, you know, you've grown as a church and God's at work in your midst, what marks me as an apostle is actually I carry you in my heart, my, my love for you, my investment in you, right? The fact that I've poured out my life like a drink offering into you, the people I've sought to pastor and love, that's what marks me as an apostle, right? That's how you're a letter of recommendation for me because you are written on my hearts, on my heart, written on our hearts. He, he uses it um, broadly to probably speak of Titus and Timothy and others who have served alongside of him. Right? And then, but then look at verse 3, right? No surprise. And you show that you're a letter from Christ, right? If we know anything about Paul, we know he wants to be very clear, right? God has worked through me. It's ultimately Christ's work. So it's not like I get credit for all the great things you've done. I'm merely a vessel that God has worked through because you're ultimately a letter from Christ delivered by us, right? The, the analogy gets a little confusing, right? You're like, okay, they're a letter, but it's clear. The, the, the heart of it is clear. This is Christ's work. Christ has worked in you, right? And we're merely the delivery men, right? He's the one who's worked in you. Written, not with ink. Oh, that you are a letter from Christ, deliver us. Written, not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. All right, so here's the first thing I want to say about what do we celebrate in the gift of the spirit? What, what do we remember and know in the gift of the spirit is that in the gift of the spirit, in the work of the spirit in our midst, we have intimacy with God, right? We know God intimately. We can, his, his very spirit writes on our hearts, right? Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts, right? And so Paul said, you know, I carry you in my heart, but actually the very spirit of God is carried in your heart. He is in your heart. He is written upon your heart. He is at work in you. And there's a contrast there, obviously, with the tablets of stone and the tablets of human hearts. Um, And tablets of stone, of course, reminds us, and it continues this, you know, Imagery is brought out more and more in this passage of the giving of the Ten Commandments, right? The giving of the law, right? The written on the tablets of stone. And if you think about the giving of the Ten Commandments, right, that was actually an incredible moment of intimacy with the Lord for the people of God, right? If you remember the story, right, God comes down on the mountain, 
right? There's lightning, right? I mean, there's, you know, all this sounds, I mean, they can tell that the very presence of God has come near to them. They actually put barriers up so no one will touch the mountain because it's so holy, right? To touch that mountain would be to die, right? And remember, God speaks to them. He speaks to the people, and they actually tell Moses, have him speak to you, right? We're too afraid, actually, even to hear his voice. And so God draws near to them, right? And they're overwhelmed by his holiness, But then there's actually a moment where the elders of actually the people of God actually have this meal in God's presence. It's this beautiful moment. And then you have Moses, which is referenced here, would have times where he would speak to God face to face, right? He brought down from the mountain the very tablets, right, written by God. And so Paul is taking this moment of intimacy and closeness with the Lord, and he's saying, but actually you have even a greater closeness. This isn't God writing on tablets of stone. This is God writing on your heart. You know an intimacy um, with the Lord. Now, that reference there is not just to um, the Ten Commandments and the giving of the law, right? Also, clearly there he's referencing Jeremiah when it speaks of the new covenant. He speaks about, I'm a minister of the new covenant. So let me read from Jeremiah 31. It's a couple verses, but I I want you to hear the whole thing because it's so much informing what Paul is writing here. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, On the day when I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, right? So again, a reference to the giving of the law and the exodus. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So Paul's saying, this is the message I brought to you. That the Spirit of God, the new covenant is yours now. You can experience this, the very Spirit of God written on your hearts. And also in mind, clearly, is Ezekiel. We have one reading from Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36 says this, And I will give you a new heart, the Lord speaking to his people, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. Well, again, Paul is saying, what was you know, spoken of in the scriptures, you experience now, that intimacy, that work of the Spirit within you. Now let me just say, and you've heard me say this before, I talked about this on Pentecost. I want to both say the Spirit of God is at work within you. The Spirit of God indwells you, whether you feel that or not. Right? Whether we feel like God is close, right? we can rest assured in the promises of God that are yes and amen in Jesus Christ, that his very Spirit indwells us, that he is present with us. But it's also okay to pray, I believe, and to ask, Lord, let me know your spirit. Let me know this intimacy. May I grow in the knowledge of your intimacy. And may I grow in the experience of your intimacy. Again, we don't want to base our faith on experience, but we can say, Lord, you do indwell me. So may you lead me. May you teach me. May you remind me of your indwelling presence. And what a gift that is, that the very spirit of God indwells me. So the spirit of God brings intimacy. The spirit of God brings life. In this gift of the Spirit, we have life. And actually, that comes out with a kind of rather challenging um, comparison here, and actually in some rather challenging words about the giving of the law. Because we can see there in the next couple paragraphs, that he speaks again of the giving of the law, of the old covenant, as he calls it and refers to it. I mean, he talks about um, the letter kills, right, at the end of of verse 6, right? He speaks about the, the letter, right, the giving of the law. Verse 7, he calls it a ministry of death. Verse 9, a ministry of condemnation. Right? Verse 10, he ta- or 11, he talks about being brought to an end. Right? And so pretty negative language around the giving of the law. Right? A ministry of death, a ministry of condemnation that it kills. 
And yet at the same time, he acknowledges it came with glory, like I just talked about, right? When the law was given, it was glorious and amazing, right? I mean, Moses, again, his face would glow, and that's a big image important to this passage when he would be in the presence of God. So how do we understand this? How do we understand it was both glorious, and obviously God gave the law to his people because he loved his people, and yet understand it as a ministry of death, a ministry of condemnation. That's the the challenge for us. And again, the contrast then with the work of the Spirit, which brings life. Well, actually, I think one thing that's helpful, near the end of the book of Deuteronomy, so the end of sort of the, the law, oftentimes the four, or the first five books of the scriptures are sometimes even called the law or the books of Moses. Near the end of Deuteronomy, God says... Right? I put before you the way of life and the way of death. Right? And the way of life is to conform yourself to my laws, to submit yourself and to follow my law. And that is the way of life. That is the way of blessing. But to reject these laws is the way of perishing. That is the way of death. And I believe actually what, what Paul is getting to here is there was a rejection of the laws again and again by the people of God. And it led to death. It led to condemnation. Right? The law wasn't given to condemn But ultimately, the law, in a sense, brought condemnation because it shined a light on the fact that the people of God continued to rebel against God. They they continued to go their way. So God basically said, here's the way of life. And then, sadly, increasingly, we see as we look at the history of the people of God, right, that they turn and go down the way of death. And so, in a sense, there there was, in a sense, the letter killed. They killed, in a sense, in a way that was necessary so that they would see this is what happens when you go beyond, when you do not follow the way of life, right? And so, again, we can just look at the history, right? I mean, not long after the law was given where the people said, we will do whatever you tell us, they were worshiping a golden calf that they, they built while Moses was up on the mountain, right? We see them being brought into the promised land, right? And we see the faithfulness of leaders like Joshua, we brought them to the promised land, and yet then we see them settling in the promised land, you get the book of Judges, where everyone did right in, the sight, in their own eyes, right, rather than what the Lord called them to. You see that again and again. You see it in our Ezekiel reading, right, where more than once the Lord speaks of that nation of Israel as this rebellious house, right, and this is coming in the context of the exile, right? So sadly, the Lord gave the law to lead them to life, but the rebellion against the law, the turning their own way, led to death. I think it's also helpful as we try to get our mind around this, right, is to compare, right, the ministry of Moses to the ministry of Jesus, Ministry of Moses was awesome, right? I mean, what an incredible leader, one who knew intimacy with God. And yet, if we look at the ministry of Jesus, we say, well, how much more glorious is the ministry of Jesus, right? Moses was a type of savior. He led them out of slavery. I mean, it's amazing. And he, you know, let God lead him and submitted himself to God, right? But only Jesus could save us from sin and death. And so we could talk about the glorious work of Moses, but compared to Jesus, right, it's not that glorious at all. Because, right, I mean, Moses had reflected glory. Jesus, right, we think about the transfiguration, he's just glorious in and of himself. And so that helps us to see a little bit, right, you know, what's the, the contrast, right? And we even, I think, see this in, in Jesus' ministry recorded in the Gospels, where we see actually leaders that were submitted to the law and were seeking on the law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they were actually seeking to make up for the mistakes of the previous generations, of their ancestors, And yet now the focus had become only on the law to the detriment, actually, of seeking to know the Lord, right? And so you have, and again, you get a little sense of it in our gospel reading. I think one place this is brought out so powerfully is the times when Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath. And so religious leaders, leaders who were supposed to represent God to the people, were actually upset that someone had been healed. I just think, what covers more, right, being uh, the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law, if you're mad that someone's been miraculously healed? 
And they'd say, well, you know, you shouldn't do it on the Sabbath. And Jesus would say to them, you care about animals on the Sabbath, right? You take care of your calves and your cattle on the Sabbath, but you don't care about people. So that's, in a sense, the law without the Spirit. And that's what Paul is saying. Look, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And so we know the Savior. Right? We've received the ministry of Jesus. And so there is no condemnation in Christ. To put our faith in Jesus and his death and resurrection on our behalf is to receive grace, right? And the Spirit of God, right, as we put our faith in Jesus, brings life, right? In the Spirit, we are new creation. In the Spirit, we are born again. And that's not just life after death, although that's a big deal, right? And so, yes, absolutely, we should celebrate. We receive the Spirit, and we know that we have eternal life. We know that we do not have to be afraid of death. We know that there is no condemnation, that our sins are forgiven, right? We can pray with David, take not your spirit from me, Right, which David prayed, but we actually pray that knowing the Lord won't take his spirit from us. Right? We can take, pray that with assurance because, again, we have received the spirit and the new life in the spirit. But, again, that work of the spirit begins now. It's not just a deposit for the time to come, although, again, the spirit does give us a deposit <laughs> for the time to come, for the promise of eternal life. But we experience the work of the spirit even right now. And that's the third thing, the final thing I want to emphasize that Paul talks about in the gift of the Spirit is the gift of the Spirit brings ongoing transformation. So we're given life, we're given forgiveness of sins, we're given eternal life, right? But we also experience transformation now and ongoing growth. Okay, so one more tricky thing here. So what's going on with the veil? We got the, the final um, uh, paragraph, and I realize this is a long reading on 4th of July uh, weekend, um, but it's such a, a cohesive, um, altogether piece. And so... Paul speaks of this veil. Um, And so a little background. So again, uh, Moses would be in the presence of God, and actually being in the presence of God would cause his face to glow. Um, And so the first time he came sort of out of this meeting with the Lord, and the Israelites saw him, they were afraid, all right, because his face was glowing, and so he put this veil on. And then we're told in the book of Exodus that he continued to put the veil on whenever he had been with the Lord and came out among the people, so they wouldn't see his face glowing. And it seems like actually in some sense that continuing to put on the veil was sort of an act of judgment on Moses' part. Like you pulled away from the Lord, right? And you're, you're afraid when my face glows, so I won't even let you see it, right? That, that seems like what's going on. And Paul here is clearly taking the veil to represent the temporary nature of the giving of the law. Again, the law was given for the people as a gift. But it couldn't fulfill their ultimate need. It could direct them in how they were to lead, but it couldn't ultimately give them life. And so he takes sort of Moses' veil and connects that to the temporary nature. He says, right, the, the law came to an end, was being brought to an end. He says here that they may not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. So again, a little confusing. There's even some debate about how the veil represents the temporary nature, but we can say that's the image that's being used. So there's a temporariness of the veil, but then he uses the veil as well, as well <laughs> to represent um, missing out on the fullness of sort of the Lord's work. Right? He says basically that veil continues to cover people and they don't understand when they see the law, but they don't see the fulfillment of the law in Christ. So the veil, same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ it is taken away. If you're looking at the law, but you don't know that the, the Savior has fulfilled the law and that in him there is no condemnation, then you're missing out on the fullness of what God has done. And think about how personal this is for Paul. Right? This was his experience. Right? He loved the law. He loved God. And so he thought when these people started talking about a savior and started talking about freedom, right, in the spirit, that he had to stop them, right? And so he was there when the first Christian martyr, when Stephen was put to death, he was there approving it because he was thinking, this guy's dangerous, right? He's teaching a different law, 
right? And he was persecuting Christians. And then God confronted him, Christ confronted him, the risen Jesus confronted him, and Paul's eyes were opened. Of course, ironically, the eyes of his heart were opened even as his physical eyes were blinded for three days. Right? But he, so he experienced that, right? He realized, oh, there's a veil. I'm missing out on the fullness of the truth of the scriptures. And in Jesus, that veil is removed. Right? When it talks about when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Turns to the Lord, that's an image of repentance. Right? When one confesses their sin, when they realize they need a Savior and turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't need to continue to study Scripture and learn from Scripture. But he's saying, you see the fullness. You see, as we already read, that every promise of God is yes and amen in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so to remove the veil is to basically say, look, this is ongoing, the work of the Spirit. It's not temporary. It's permanent. The work of the Spirit will continue in you for all eternity. And this is the fullness of the Lord. This is the freedom that the Lord gives us. When it says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That doesn't mean, hey, when we've received the Spirit of the Lord, we don't have to care about, you know, sin anymore. We can just do whatever we want to, right? We don't have to care about obeying the Lord. No, of course not, right? Fourth of July, right? We celebrate we are the land of the free. We're not saying, oh, we're the land of anarchy. No, we're saying they're good laws, right, that help us, that actually influence, that help us to live freedom, right, and to live in freedom. In the same way, right, the Spirit of God actually helps us to live in the freedom that the Lord has us. The Spirit helps us to live in growth in Him. The Spirit of the Lord helps us to live in obedience, right? We fail, and the Spirit assures us of our forgiveness and assures us of the mercy of the Lord, and then we continue on the journey of growth that the Lord has for us. And it is a growth of transformation. We all, with unveiled face, that's not about wearing a mask or not during the pandemic. Um, that's a verse was quoted a lot, taken out of context, right? That's talking about, right, we all, with unveiled face, with knowing the fullness of the gospel and the permanent work of the Spirit, Behold the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We're invited on a journey of transformation. And the amazing thing is, as we behold the glory of the Lord, as we look to Jesus, we actually become more and more like him, which means we become more and more like ourselves. Right? For anybody else, if they say, you need to be more like this person, usually that can be kind of you know, oppressive, right? Because you're not supposed to be that person. You're supposed to be you. Right? But to be more and more like Jesus is actually to be more and more like who God created us to be. We are made in the image of God. Jesus is the perfect image of God. And so as we behold his glory and are transformed more and more into his likeness, we're more and more becoming the image of God. We're, we're more and more living into our identity as image bearers. And that doesn't mean that the ultimate goal is that we all be the same, right? That's not, I mean, you look at the book of Revelation, the vision of heaven we get in Revelation is actually a diverse people of God but focused and centered on Jesus. So actually the Lord wants us to be more ourselves, which is more like Jesus, right? And so when somebody tells you, you gotta be like this person, that can be oppressive. Sometimes when someone tells you, just be yourself, that can be hard, right? Because we can say, I don't even know how to be myself. I don't even not sure who myself is. But Jesus knows. As we look to him, as we receive the transforming work of the spirit, we're actually becoming more and more who we are as image bearers, more and more true to our, our identity, um, and that is a glorious journey. And please note that the command there is not try harder to be like Jesus, although, again, it's good to have disciplines. It's good to um, engage and seek to grow. The command is behold the glory of the Lord. Look to him. Focus your eyes on him. and Let him do that transforming work in you. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for sending Jesus we thank you, Lord, for pouring out the very, your very spirit on us. We thank you, Spirit of God, 
for the life that we have in you, for bringing us new birth, for making us new creations. Give us hearts full of joy, Lord, in this holiday weekend as we celebrate so many good things, as we celebrate blessings that we've received living in this country. May we celebrate the greater blessings, the greater glory, which is belonging to you, which is being citizens of your kingdom, and which is knowing um, a freedom in the spirit um, that we only have through you, Jesus. So we give you thanks and praise and offer these prayers in the name of Jesus. Amen.